Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. Today I'm talking to Joe Jones, the inventor of arguably the most successful robot ever made, iRobot's Roomba Vacuum, and also most recently, the world's first residential weeding robot called Turtle. Joe, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. It's, it's great to be with you today. I'd like to start talking about Roomba, first of all, because um, I'm kind of a neat nick myself. I, I, I do find that when I've had too many cups of coffee, I tend to clean the house a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> my kids call it an unhealthy obsession, but, uh, but I, I think it's, it's pretty good for the family. Uh, I don't yeah. actually own a Roomba because it would take too much of the fun out of my life, but uh, I, I would love to learn more about it just because it's been such a successful product. What, what, was it like 15 million sold or is it even more than that now? Probably uh, I, I think it's, uh, lately they've been selling about a million a year, a little, little over a million. I think the total is more like 20 to 25 million. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I was looking at old numbers there. That, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. What, how would you, um, can you pinpoint why the product has been so successful? That's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, from my point of view, uh, I think it's successful because finally we, uh, we built a robot that actually did something that people wanted done. Um, so I'm focused on the technology and that's the part that I know best. And, that's the, and, and of course I attribute the success to the part that I had some doing and uh, some say in the technology, but I'm sure that there's a lot more that goes into it than that. I think, uh, I think robot, uh, iRobot has been very successful at the way that they marketed the product. Um, but on the other hand, since uh, I, the last time I heard, there were like at least 17 different companies that were making uh, robot vacuum cleaners. So I think it's pretty clear that uh, uh, robot vacuum cleaners serve a real need, that people actually want them and they're, they're useful in their lives. Yeah, so it's a, it's a successful category as well. But um, yep. clearly, clearly you've had, you hit on something there with your design. Um, before we get into talking a lot, lot more about that, because I do want to learn more about the, the, the invention process and the design process, but um, I'd love to know more about your background in robotics in the first place. What, what, what's your educational background and, and how'd that lead into what you're doing now? Oh, uh, it sort of didn't. I mean, uh, my, uh, my educational background is that I majored in physics when I was in college and I thought that I was going to become an experimental physicist. But when I was a kid, I was, I was a tinkerer, always a tinkerer. I was always trying to, to build something and to make something work. And uh, I was really interested in, in science and technology. So uh, I went to college thinking I'd be experimental physicist. But then when I got to physics graduate school, I couldn't find any, any particular branch of physics that I was uh, passionate enough about to, to work as hard as one has to work to get a PhD. So uh, I got a job at a linear accelerator thinking that I would figure out, uh, figure out my physics passion after a while. And three years later, I hadn't figured it out. So then I took a trip around the world. Uh, and when I got back, it was a year later, uh, they were hiring at the artificial intelligence lab at MIT. And they were kind enough to give me a job there. And that was where I discovered that my, my true calling is, is robots. Because it was just such an exciting, fascinating place. There's all these people working on these incredible uh, algorithms and mechanisms. And, uh, and I thought, I was convinced 
that within uh, three to five years, robots were going to be everywhere doing all kinds of things. So when I was started at the AI lab, it was 1982. So wow. you, can, you can do the math and you know that yeah. three to five years after that, robots were not everywhere doing everything. Um, so that, that gave me pause and I tried to figure out why, uh, why there weren't robots everywhere. Uh, and, and sort of that, that led to the, the thing that be, uh, the, the, the principles that turned into Roomba eventually. Yeah, so how, how does that process work at the Artificial Intelligence Lab, which um, I, I've been hearing about for, for many years, and it's, it's just quite the, the mythical kind of place, I guess. Um, so how do you go from developing iRobot in the lab, uh, or, or developing, I'm sorry, developing the Roomba in the lab, basically, right, um, and then joining a company? Um, and, and, well, and be becoming uh, like an actual employee of that company. So, um, well, okay. The way that it happened was that uh, in uh, January of 1989, the mobile robot group at the AI lab had uh, held this event that they called the, the Robot Olympics. And part of it was a, a talent show at the end of that. And, and they handed out kits of parts to anybody who was interested, who wanted to build any kind of robot that they could, uh, could think of. Of course, you had only a month to do it because the, the talent show is going to be at the end of the month. And I came up with, uh, so I had the opposite problem with you. I am, I am not a natural born cleaner, right? <laughs> I, I would like for my apartment to be clean, but I just don't want to do it. So I thought, well, I'll build a, a little robot that will clean the floor. And at least, you know, that part will be done. So I worked diligently for that, that month. Um, <clears throat> and by the end of it, I had a, uh, a robot that uh, was mostly made out of Lego. Uh, it used the sensors and the microprocessor board that the uh, mobile robot group had provided. And um, it rolled around the floor. It bumped into things. It turned away. And it, it kind of worked. It picked up, uh, picked up a little bit of dirt. And it made me think that, you know, with, with more development, well, it wasn't robust enough, right? I couldn't just turn it loose in my apartment and, and uh, by the end of the day, it would be clean. Uh, it wasn't robust enough to do that. But it seemed to me that, you know, it was just... Uh, with some more development with an actual company behind this kind of thing that uh, it was totally feasible. So that's where we left it at the AI lab. And then not too long after that, the lab ran out of money and I got laid off. Uh, but fortunately, um, iRobot was starting right around that time. So I became their first full-time hire. Ah. That that's that's good timing then. Okay, it really was. <laughs> so 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 you were you were still at the Lego stage when you joined them, or had you made it much more robust at that point? No, I hadn't. Uh, and uh, at at this stage, this was 1991. So uh, this was still a long time before they launched Roomba, which was 2002. Uh, so uh, in the early days, what we so iRobot didn't have much money in the early days. They were going from, you know, month to month, paycheck to paycheck. Um, so they didn't have, there was no possible way that they could develop it on their own. So it kind of languished there for a while. We wrote a letter to Bissell, you know, the folks who make mm -hmm. the, the carpet sweepers. And we said, you know, we, uh, we have this wonderful idea for you. Uh, it's a little robot that will clean people's floors. And the, they wrote back to us and said, well, we won't read your letter until you signed a bunch of things. So we signed a bunch of forms, we sent them back, then they read our letter. And a couple of weeks after that, they said, well, nobody will pay more than 20 or $30 for a carpet sweeper, which is basically what you're advocating. So we're not interested. So it sat there for several more years until 
1999 when iRobot finally had uh, had established itself well enough that they could um, contemplate uh, developing something like Roomba. Okay, so they so they got around to it on their own and got their own um, money in place and everything. So talk about the design because I think that a lot of people would be more interested probably in that than the business end of things. But uh, Good. You're, you're dealing with um, obviously. Uh, trying to bounce off of things first you got that figured out early on but then then you have to deal with obstacles and hazards and that sort of thing so there's there's challenges there right and well the the thing to, that we had to, to figure out early on was um the, basically how are you going to do it there's this problem at least as i see it in robotics it's a problem that there's all these solutions that already exist there there's manual vacuum cleaners and people know how to use those and they think well that's a great solution you uh, you put in a powerful motor and uh, <clears throat> you run it around for a while uh, you know 10 or 15 minutes in your living room and it's clean so just make a robot that does that but the problem of course is that people have these wonderful strengths that uh, robots don't have people know where it's dirty and where it's clean they know where they've been um, so <clears throat> If you have to, if you have to make a robot that works the same way, uh, that a, that solves a problem in the same way that a human would solve the problem, you've made it impossibly difficult for the robot. So uh, our idea was to rethink the problem from the ground up. So since a robot doesn't, uh, in in those days it was really expensive to have a um, a positioning system that would let the robot always know where it was. It probably would have added a thousand dollars to the bill of materials for the robot, which would make it completely prohibitively expensive. So we had to come up with another idea. And that idea was that we'll just let it bounce around. And um, it'll take the robot longer to clean the floor than it would take a, a human being. But what else does the robot have to do, right? That's its only job. If it takes all day to clean the floor, that's fine. Uh, and then the other problem was, so um, a, um, a regular, a uh, manual vacuum cleaner, you, the one you plug into the wall, quite typically draws 1,400 watts. So if I made a robot that drew 1,400 watts, it would, uh, with uh, the size of Roomba, with the battery that would fit in a robot like that, it would be out of power in a minute. Mm. So we couldn't use that. We couldn't use the standard um, vacuum motor that uh, any other manual vacuum would have. We had to, to find a way to clean using much less energy. And ironically, we went back to the invention that Melville Bissell came up with in 1876, because the carpet sweeper, if you consider a carpet sweeper, you, you just use your muscles to push it around, and it's pretty effective at uh, picking up dirt off the floor. So it's way more energy efficient than uh, a standard manual vacuum cleaner. So we put this carpet sweeper mechanism in the, in the robot uh, as a way of solving uh, our energy problem. So you put those two things together and we have what, what I consider a viable product. Did you um, quickly have, as the product was uh, put on the market then, was it the first on the market or were you, did you? It was not. Okay. It was not the first on the market. The first on the market was uh, a robot from Electrolux called the Trilobite. And it actually, they had been talking about it for several years before we started developing Roomba, but they actually put it on the market um, uh, while, we're, while development of Roomba was underway. So we sent a couple of folks over to uh, Sweden. It was only available at one store, at the, the, the Electrolux flagship store in Stockholm. So we sent a couple of people over to Stockholm in the middle of the winter to buy a couple of these uh, robots and they brought it back. 
and um, we, of course, we took them apart. Yeah. And we were really impressed with the technology that was in these things. They had uh, this incredible sonar technology and uh, wow. all, a number of a number of really interesting things. In fact, they did they did a demonstration where they put. Uh, a wine glass full of red wine on the floor and they had the trilobite come right up to it and turn away. Nice. So, um, and, and that was, that was great. But the problem with the, uh, the trilobite was it costs like $1,400. Uh-huh. Yes, so the price. people know what a vacuum costs and it mm-hmm. doesn't cost that much. So that was another uh, constraint that we put on Roomba. It has to be priced the close to what other uh, vacuums are priced. So, uh, our initial target was $100. We, we wanted to make a robot that cost $100. We couldn't do that, and we were kind of disappointed, but we got, it, uh, got the price of the initial, uh, the original Roomba to $200. And so that compared to the Electrolux meant that, you know, the, the Electrolux didn't really have a chance, since they both cleaned about equally well. Yeah. What other design um, challenges do you think that other companies face that that you were able to be successful with with Roomba? I, I read about how how many iterations you kind of came up with to solve different problems and that others maybe went to market a little quicker and didn't uh, didn't have happen to reach all of those design uh, levels that you had reached. What, well, what were some of the things that you found that that needed to be fixed? So the, the th- I, I really think that the, the difference between uh, what we did at iRobot and what the other companies uh, did was basically a mindset uh, issue. It was, uh, I, I'd always thought that uh, roboticists love robots to death. What they want to do is to make them as, um, uh, as high tech as possible. They want to strap on as many bells and whistles as they can. And we had the opposite idea. We, had, we thought that if you build a robot that just does one thing and does it well, uh, it has a big advantage over some robot that costs a lot more and supposedly does a whole bunch of different things. So that was, it was mostly uh, that we didn't do stuff rather than that we did do stuff that made, uh, that made Roomba successful. Okay, before we continue our conversation show, I wanna take a short break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you for listening to Residential Tech Talks. Today's broadcast is brought to you by Elk Products, a leading designer and manufacturer of customized security, automation, and energy management solutions for home and business with unsurpassed product quality and technical support. Secure, reliable, innovative. Control at your fingertips. Find out more today. Go to elkproducts.com. Welcome back. I'm talking to Joe Jones inventor of the Roomba. Roomba, I'm sorry, I don't say it enough out loud. It's one of those things that's uh, ubiquitous in our culture and uh, it's, a, it's a fun product. I, I, I know that you, you gained a lot of experience uh, working at iRobot, but then um, you did venture out on your own um, and uh, start another company. Can you tell us about, about when, when that happened and what your, uh, what your move was all about there? Yeah, so I've been at uh, iRobot for almost 15 years, and um, uh, the focus of iRobot was on robots for uh, for, for for consumers for for the home, and I wasn't sure that the next uh, big big thing in robotics would be uh, a consumer product for the home, something related to the floor cleaning. So uh, in order to do something else, I had to had to go somewhere else. So uh, I and some other folks from iRobot started this company called Harvest Automation. 
and what Harvest Automation did, well, actually, when we started the company, we didn't know what we were going to do. So we spent the first few months looking around, and we found this interesting application that none of us had ever heard of before, and it's called spacing. And at uh, nursery farms and greenhouses, when they produce uh, plants, potted plants that you go into a garden store to buy, um, they produce like two billion of these a year across the United States. And one step in the life cycle of these potted plants is where first they're put uh, on the ground outdoors close together. And then as the plants start to grow, uh, if you don't move them apart, the, they'll grow into each other and damage each other and you can't sell them. So they do this, this uh, thing called spacing where they move the plants a little bit apart. Um, <clears throat> and it takes an army of people to do this. And we, when we ran across this application, we thought, well, if we, we can't build a robot that does this, then we're, we're in the wrong market. Mm -hmm. we're, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be building robots. So we spent a, a few years uh, building a, a robot that would do that, and it actually worked. It, uh, it's uh, employed now, uh, I think there's uh, you know, maybe 30 to 50 customers across the United States that are using this to, uh, to space potted plants in their nursery and, and greenhouse uh, farms. Oh, interesting. I, I've, I've done that. I've, I've tried to be a gardener too and less successful, I think, than my cleaning habits. But uh, yeah, that thinning of those, you, you, want it, you, you want to keep all these little plants like growing right all together and then yep. you, you realize that's not going to work out yep. so well. Right. Um, so so you, you were doing that for a while. Um, how, did, did you quickly move on to your current uh, robotics company, Franklin well, it, Robotics, or the other things? I didn't quickly move on to it. It took about, I was there for about the, at Harvest Automation for about 10 years. Oh, okay. Um, but the market, uh, Harvest Automation was, uh, was VC funded, and the market wasn't really growing fast enough for the, the VC backers. So they, uh, the interest started moving to another place, and Harvest Automation started investigating um, uh, warehouse robots. <clears throat> and that's an interesting thing. And I think that there, there's lots of warehouse robots. People are developing them now. Um, but the issue with the warehouse robots, the big, uh, the big challenge is the central software system. And I don't care about centralized <laughs> software, right? I like robots that go around and do their own thing. Right. So, uh, so I had been looking for um, other things that robots could do in agriculture while I was at, um, at Harvest. And uh, it seemed like, you know, weeding farm fields is, is a, a great application and, and it would be wonderful if you could uh, build robots that could do that competitively. Um, but I, I couldn't think of any, uh, of any approach that was better than what I saw other people already doing, so I didn't really jump into that. And then um, in 2015, I went to a conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Robo Madness. And there I ran into an acquaintance of mine who suggested building a robot that uh, weeds home gardens. Okay. And, and it turns out that the problem is just different enough that uh, although I didn't think I could build a robot that weeded farm fields, I did think I could build more, an economical robot that would uh, weed home gardens. Uh, and the, and the, big, uh, the big challenge in building um, a robot for weeding is how do you decide what's a crop and what's a weed? Sure. Right. And uh, most of the folks who are looking at that have decided that uh, use a vision system. Mm. Use a vision system and you train it uh, with, uh, you use machine learning techniques to train it. And uh, although there's a lot of activity, I, I'm not aware of any 
actually commercially successful product that, that, that does that. So um, <clears throat> I wanted a different way. I didn't want to have to depend on a research project coming to fruition before I could build a robot. So what we decided on for, um, uh, for our robot, uh, the, so now I've gotten to after harvest, I left uh, about that time to start uh, Franklin Robotics. And what we decided to do for our robot was to distinguish weeds from crops based on how tall they were. Okay. So, uh, so that's viable for a home garden because if you plant a seed or if you have a little seedling that's, that's a short plant that's growing in your garden, you can protect it with a, um, uh, a plant guide or, or uh, something like a, little, a tiny little tomato cage. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it, it makes sense to put them around all of the, the seeds or, or rows of seeds, something like that. Um, but if you're growing a thousand acres of corn, putting a little tomato cage around every, every corn seed is just a non-starter. Sure. Right. So, so that was why I thought, well, this product will work in the garden, but I don't yet know how to make it work uh, in a, a farm field. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but that sort of led us uh, in the direction that the, that the product ultimately went. Well, one of our writers, Jay Basin, um, actually introduced me to you, and he's he's reviewed uh, Turtle, which is the product that you came up with, uh, to to weed gardens, and it was interesting to to read about his experience with it and how, um, unlike your typical weeding experience, you're not trying to pull the root out; you're actually decapitating the the weed so that it just is basically kept from growing and demoralized. And it, since it's doing it all the time, just like the Roomba is right. cleaning all the time, it's not going to complain about doing this like tedious job that no human really wants to do, right? Yes, exactly. And, and that, that goes back to uh, the point, which I think is essential in robotics. You really have to think about doing the, whatever, uh, whatever task you want to do, you have to reimagine uh, re that from the ground up. You can't just copy what people are doing, again, because people and robots have different strengths. Uh, a person can walk out into the garden and they can see that's the weed that I want to pull and, and, and pull it. Um, the, the robot is, has a much, much harder time doing that, but the robot has eternal patience, right? It'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll live in the garden. It'll, it'll work for, you know, a few hours every day and it'll come back. It'll, it'll chop the top off of a weed one day and it grows back. It'll come back the next day and chop it off again. And eventually the weed runs out of energy and it dies. So the only way that we could build a product like Turtle is if we reimagined the task and did it in a way different from the way that, uh, that people do that task. Did you have to do a little bit of research in plant science to, to know that about weeds and how they do eventually die? Or is it just you kind of observe it happening? <laughs> How's that all work? Well, uh, I remember one thing that I did while I was at, um, at Harvest uh, I went to this uh, really interesting um, agriculture conference. I'd never gone to an agriculture conference before. It was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And there was a guy talking about weeds. And he gave the example of the yellow nut sedge. I'd oh, never yeah. heard of yellow nut sedge before. But uh, it's apparently, it's a, it's a tough weed. And the thing that makes it so tough is that yellow nut sedge has these nodules that grow underground. So when you chop the top off, it'll grow back. You chop it off again and it'll grow back. But the, but the, the speaker told us that if you do this eight times, yellow nut sedge dies. Okay. So that was, uh, that was sort of what I knew about weeds. At the, that's at the that's stuck in your mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually familiar with that weed. It's, uh, it's oh, yeah. quite invasive and it just, it sticks on everything. It's just like, you can't pull up from one spot. It's, uh, Mm -hmm. It's a it's a wild one, and uh, 
and that that's uh that's interesting to know i i did not know that about weed so you're already ahead of me on on the knowledge base um to where you're going with it and and the fact that you you then have to just figure figure out a, a a robot that can that's mobile through a different terrain than a flat carpet for instance like with Roomba right that's a challenge for for you mobility mobility was a great challenge i mean the uh you have two opposite constraints on the one hand you want to make the robot as small as possible so we can get between uh the the, the crops that people have planted and sometimes they plant them fairly close together on the other hand the terrain in a garden can be you know arbitrarily rough so you have to make this tiny little machine that can move around and not fall down uh, fall in holes and, and get stuck uh so we basically worked a year we spent a year just iterating on that challenge of making the robot as small as we could and yet mobile enough to get around um, a typical garden so it wouldn't get stuck. Are there examples that you follow with that? Or you just, it's just trial and error with different wheels types and um, angles and that sort of thing and height? Of well, you always, you, you always look at the stuff that other people have done. So uh, there's, there's a lot of work in you know, uh, off-road mobility. And one thing that we, uh, we looked at for a while is, oh, I've forgotten what they're, uh, what they're called, but there's these devices that have like uh, two cylinders on either side of the device that touches the ground. And the cylinders have like a screw going around it so that, that the cylinders turn and then they can go through mud or through swamps or, or whatever. So we worked on that. In fact, you can get a toy. We got a toy that uh, that does that, uh, and we played with that for a while, and it wasn't quite the right thing. So, uh, you know, you you try to ride uh, on you know what what other people have already done, and sometimes you find things that work, and sometimes you don't, and you just have to go uh, trial and error. That was sort of how we got. So, the, so the wheels on Turtle are not you know they're not up and down. They have a huge amount of camber, like forty five degrees worth of camber, uh, and and that was one of the things that. Uh, that we ultimately got led to trying to solve the constraints of trying to make it something which was which was tiny wouldn't tip over so by turn by giving the wheels a lot of camber we could get the um the bottom of the wheel out to the edge of the robot so we could give it as as large a base a wheelbase as was possible uh to keep it from turning over and uh it also having having the uh the wheels splayed out that way gave us more room to put the whacker so it'd have a bigger uh, it could swing around in a, in a larger diameter. Um, and there was another one or two things like, um, uh, one thing you have to worry about with outdoor robots is getting high centered. That is, you can, that's, it'll drive over a rock or a clod of dirt that'll, that'll raise it up just enough so that the wheels aren't on the ground anymore uh, and then, then it's stuck. So having the wheels, um, <clears throat> building in the way that we did with the wheels uh, sort of diagonal meant that uh, there's there's a lot more area underneath the robot that's spinning that can provide mobility. So if the rock hits the hits the wheel, you still have some chance that you're going to be able to get off of it. So okay. uh, that that's why it took us a year to get to the design that we ultimately ended up with. And is it like a string cutter underneath? I forget if what the whacker is. Yes, we're we're just using the same kind of uh, uh, whacker string that uh, you know handheld uh, uh, weed eaters and such like use. So how much maintenance is involved for the, for the actual owner of this product um, in terms of pulling string out or doing different things to, to keep it working? Yeah, the ideal is zero. We haven't quite uh, that you just put it in the garden in the spring and you take it out in the fall and you never have any weeds in between. It takes a little bit more than that. Uh, the, uh, the whacker string does wear out and it wears out faster. Actually, it, it 
how fast it wears out mostly depends on how many rocks you have in your garden. Uh, it's not that it's worn down by the weeds so much, it's worn down by the rocks and, and, and soil. So if you have a lot of rocks, you might have to change it, uh, change the whacker string you know, once a week. If you have very few, maybe you can get away with a month. So it's really all about getting prepped at the beginning of the season, getting everything set up, the plants properly spaced, yeah. the rocks right. taken out as much as possible, and then it'll take the pain away from gardening for the season. Yeah, you, you, you set your garden up, you, you give it the, uh, you, you give your, enough, your plants enough space so that turtle can get through, which is also uh, often a, a way of getting, getting more yield out of each plant because now they're not interfering with each other with the uh, casting shadows and such like. So you get that set up, you put a border around the, uh, the garden so that turtle doesn't wander away out into the yard. Um, and a few basic things like that, it should be, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, pathologically smooth. It has to be fairly like rake smooth. If you, if you rake your garden with like a, a leaf rake or something, you'll make it smooth enough that turtle can operate. You do that and you don't have to, to, to worry about weeds, which nice. is a big boon for me because uh, the first time I, I tried to, to do a garden myself, I meant to be really diligent about weeding. I meant to get it at least once a week and it never happened. Uh, and after a while, I came back from vacation and I couldn't tell where the, where the crops were and where the weeds were, just <laughs> right. all one big green mass. But exactly. now my gardens are much, much better. I, I don't have to worry about that anymore. The, there, are, there are very few weeds in my garden these days. So you are applying the uh, turtle at, at your own home then? Absolutely. We thought that was, that was essential. That was one of the reasons that we were able to be um, successful with Roomba because everybody on the team was a customer, okay. right? We all had floors. So uh, I wanted to be a customer for, for turtles. So I, I basically put in the first time I put in a garden so that I could design a robot. And, and we, it's important to mention that it's a solar powered product, correct? It is absolutely solar powered. There's no, uh, no charging in, is involved. Nice, very nice. Well, um, as a robotics inventor, are you always sketching ideas? Are you always seeing p potential in things? Or is it just one of those where the big idea comes every few years and, and, and you're lucky when you can grab onto that in your, in your head? Like, how's well, that work? both. Both. <laughs> okay. Sure. I'm, always, I'm always looking for an application that a robot can do. But uh, there's a lot of constraints on that application, right? It has to be something that uh, is that you can do with the technology that you have right now, because you don't want to build a, uh, you don't want a research project on the critical path. <clears throat> and it has to be something which uh, is, uh, is economical. Um, when, you, when you build the robot, it has to be uh, competitive with whatever other solutions people are doing now. And that's probably the hardest part. People get excited about robots and they, they want robots to do everything. And, they forget that, well, okay, you could build a robot that does that, but here's this other thing which would cost a tenth as much, and you're never going to sell your robot when that's the case. So that's, that's probably the hardest part uh, when, you're, when you're trying to find a, a robot application. It has to be better with the robot, cheaper with the robot than with, with whatever people are doing now. Right, right. I mean, I, I think that what I've, I've heard a lot of uh, people that develop products and the, the limitations on price are often the part that drives so, so much of the creativity. Um, yeah. you, you, you have a big idea and that's so much, that's such an important part of it because some of us just aren't inventors, you know, and can't think of what the new thing would be. You think of the new thing, but then you're like limited by the, these parameters and that's when you go to, go to work, right? That's really the, 
the fun part of yes, making it absolutely. all happen. It, it's the constraints that make it fun. When, <laughs> when you're up against a bunch of hard constraints, you have to come up with something new. You can't just use the uh, whatever standard solutions there are because if that worked, then that product would already exist. Exactly. Well, I know that you're f focused on Turtle right now, but um, look, are you looking ahead at any categories that you could reveal without giving away any secrets? Well, uh, I will say that uh, we're, we're going to focus, uh, as a company, we're going to focus on Turtle for the next uh, few years, and we won't be doing anything other than that. But in the long term, I, I think that I am learning now how to solve the herbicide problem on, uh, on farms. So having solved the, uh, the problem of weeding in a home garden, I think I could now solve that problem uh, for farms in a way that would be uh, much less expensive than uh, at least than other robots that I have seen that are trying to do that. So um, I'm looking forward to one day to, to be able to work on that. Well, to reduce chemicals used in agriculture would be a huge accomplishment for, for, for Earth, you know, <laughs> for, for that's, mankind. That's the big dream, yeah. For sure. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to today, Joe. It's uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and getting to know your process better. Um, and uh, thank you, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great fun. Yeah, and thank you uh, to everyone else for joining us. Uh, be sure to comment, share, or subscribe to this podcast. You can check out all the latest residential tech news at www.restechtoday.com. Until next time, please stay healthy and safe and do not hesitate to reach out to me if you have a great story to tell.